welcome to Regenerated Radio, a podcast focusing on theology and apologetics in the arena of online ministries. My name is Greg, and I hope this resource is beneficial to you as you engage in evangelism and discipleship in the digital realm. This show is recorded live on YouTube on Friday nights, and you can interact with the guests by jumping in the stream. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube for more content. Welcome, everybody, to a very special and a little bit different episode of Regenerated Radio. I am here with Dr. Carl Truman. Today, we're going to talk about uh, the idea of what I'm calling digital self-imagination. Dr. Carl Truman has done a number of works, obviously, maybe most well-known for his recent title, uh, the I have it with me, <laughs> The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, which has been an excellent book that I've been working my way through with, um, you know, with some other people as well and getting a lot of conversation on. Probably one of the most important books that's uh, been written in the past you know, few years on um, you know, just the, the general state of the world. There it is. Here we go. So an uh, excellent little book. And the, the subtitle of it is Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And so there's a lot of uh, a lot of meat packed into that book. And I definitely recommend anyone listening, pick that up and give it a read because that's it's a uh, it's very important, like I said, to all of this. But uh, before we get started, Dr. Truman, I'm going to pray for us so that we can have a good conversation here and then we'll we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for technology that we can do this, even if it doesn't work necessarily the way I want it to all the time. God, we know that uh, I'm still able to have a conversation with a brother across many miles, and uh, and hopefully it will be edifying to anyone who listens to it. I pray that you would uh, you would get it to whoever needs to hear it, and that our words would be glorifying to you this afternoon. Thank you, God. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, Dr. Truman, if you wouldn't mind just really briefly introducing yourself, give us a quick, you know, titles, positions, uh, what are your specialties, some of the things that you do at, I know at Grove City College and, uh, and beyond. Yeah, well, I'm a graduate of the universities of Cambridge and Aberdeen in the United Kingdom, where I did uh, classics as an undergraduate and then uh, Reformation history slash thought as uh, a PhD. I really, by background, a Reformation specialist, 16th, 17th century, particularly reformed thought in the English-speaking world. But over the last probably seven or eight years, become increasingly interested in more contemporary questions relating to matters like identity and religious freedom. So that's the immediate background to the book that uh, you have before you today. I Taught at uh, universities of Nottingham and Aberdeen in the United Kingdom. Taught for many years at Westminster Seminary in Pennsylvania. Uh, spent a year as a visiting fellow at Princeton University. And now I'm at Grove City College, where I teach in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department, but actually teach fairly generally in the, the humanities core at Grove. Gotcha. Cool. So what, what are you currently working on? I know, obviously, this book just came out, but I'm sure you've got other things in the works. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm doing a, a, a short book that covers similar ground that might be, be useful to, to those who don't have time to wade through 400 pages. Uh, <laughs> and I'm also working on a book on doctrinal development. It's a more theological book. And I'm writing a book on the origins of critical theory and the Frankfurt School in the mid 20th century. So those are my projects at the moment, a million miles away from Reformation studies. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. What's funny, though, that you mentioned that we actually just finished a Wednesday night study uh, at my church talking about biblical social justice. And we pulled from 
uh, from your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, quite a bit uh, in discussing some of those things. So it was a really uh, good study, and we're really appreciative of the work that you've put out, obviously. And I mean, I just actually got finished recommending your book, The Creedal Imperative, uh, to some friends who were talking oh. about confessionalism. So again, yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate all your work. And so I know the time... Uh, time it takes to come on here I, it's appreciated for my tiny little podcast but, oh, thanks, uh, Bill. thanks for having me on yeah and of course if you are one of the very few people who are watching this and there's some weird intersection where you don't actually also listen to the mortification of spin definitely go and subscribe <laughs> to that podcast yes i have a podcast myself each week so yes. uh, with my friend todd pruitt yes the uh, uh, todd pruitt who is ever the butt of your jokes <laughs> oh yes well it's a mutual uh, it's a mutual arrangement sure of course <laughs> well great well, well let's jump into the actual kind of conversation the meat of what i want to talk about i've i built this podcast initially now it's sort of evolving from what it was to to more just generally whatever i want to talk about theologically which maybe isn't the best uh marketing scheme but it's just you know having guests on where i can to talk about uh, what I can. And so, but initially when I first started this podcast, the idea was to discuss uh, matters in the, the digital realm um, and, you know, how we interact with each other online and the things that are going on amongst Christians who are trying to reach others and evangelize through online platforms and things like that. Um, again, it's evolved beyond a, a little bit, but some of the questions that I have specifically for you and the way that, um, the way that you've, you know, written your book, I think that, uh, that it applies very well. And so I kind of focus on maybe some, probably the first half of your book. And in the beginning, you start with uh, sort of an amorphous concept and what Charles Taylor uh, has termed the, the social imaginary. I love that term. Uh, and a lot of the rest of that chapter is kind of refining that concept into what we're seeing in this post, the postmodernism of the world today. Uh, of course, most of your book is addressing are discussing how it relates to the sexual revolution, which is it's very enlightening. And again, pick it up if you're interested in, in reading about that. Uh, but I want to focus in sort of on how our, the self-imagination idea affects us in the sort of digital realm, um, which is a little bit of an amorphous concept in itself. So if you don't mind in, in uh, letting me, I'm going to quickly read one of the quotes that I found very enlightening uh, from page 42. I should have this bookmarked. Page 42, uh, near the top, you say that uh, many intuitively think that in Nietzschean, as in Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzschean ways about their relationship to the natural world precisely because the highly technological world we, uh, in which we now live, a world in which virtual reality is a reality, makes it so easy to do so. And that just that dug into my brain because of how often I interact with people online and the ways in which we sort of present ourselves. Uh, and so that's, that's what caught my eye. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. Uh, you expand on it a lot in the in chapter five, which is the emergence of plastic people. Uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts in general, I guess, on, on the idea of content creation and this, this new title of like influencers that we have in the world today and how that that concept has has molded those things and how we have, as a society have sort of grasped on to those those people, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, I think part of the, the sort of general background, of course, to the social imaginary idea is the idea that, that our identities are dialogical. We are who we are because of the relationships we stand in to people around us, to the environment around us, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that's happened over time is that that environment has, has changed dramatically. If you were growing up in the Middle Ages, 
for example, your world would have been fairly fixed. You would probably have been the son of a peasant farmer. Uh, you'd have lived in the same place that your ancestors had lived in. You would have worked, uh, married, uh, died in, in, in the same village. You'd have been buried in the plot of land where your uh, father was buried, where your father's father was buried. There would have been a, a solidity to the world in which you uh, existed. What we've seen over the last two or 300 years is, is the slow and steady dissolution of that for mm -hmm. various reasons. Urbanization has transformed uh, uh, the way we relate to the world around us. Technology has transformed how we relate to the world around us. And it's yeah. also shaped how we think of relationships. I think one of the, the ways people think about technology that's very mistaken is the idea that technology simply allows us to do the same things faster or more efficiently. No, technology actually transforms our, it actually does different things. It transforms our relationship to the environment. And one of the odd things about the world today, at least as I observe it as, as an older person who didn't grow up in the digital age, is the way in which what I would regard as, as non-relationships are so powerful and formative on the younger generation. Uh, Twitter followers, Facebook friends, people you never met before. These things carry huge weight with the rising generation that they, they simply don't with, with me because my identity is rooted in in relationships in a different kind of register and form. So with that at the background, then when you think about the, the emergence of influences, it's fascinating that as the, the authority, the old authorities of relationships, mm -hmm. space, traditions, et cetera, et cetera, have crumbled away. What we've done is we've, we've handed a lot of authority to a, an entirely new class of people shaping who we are and, and how we think about ourselves. These internet influencers, many of whom, when I see them, you know, mentioned on the TV or somewhere, they're under 25. And right. you know, being old and bigoted, my place, you know, no under 25 year old is going to influence me. Thank you very much. You know, they, <laughs> they need a, yeah, they need to live a bit and learn a bit in order to earn the right to be influencers. But that's not the way we we think today. Uh, those who have mastered the technology have been granted tremendous cultural authority on the way uh, the way people think. Yeah, and I think you were mentioning on, maybe it was on an episode of Mortification Has Been, I listened to a few of them in a row, so I couldn't tell you which one, but we're talking about the idea of the sort of technocratic uh, authority that people have suddenly, they've just given over all of their, uh, all of their submission to authority to technocrats and, and technology in general. And so, you know, we see, sort of the rise of Google and Facebook and uh, et cetera as kind of a, a new social elite, I guess. Uh, and then people are trying to fill the, the power gaps maybe with uh, with their own little influencer spaces. <laughs> maybe that's yeah, just I mean, my observation. I mean, in the, in the Middle Ages, we could say that power was attached to land. It was the landed right. gentry. And from the 19th century onwards, power was attached to capital those who've got money to invest. Now, power is, is, is invested heavily in those who've mastered the technology. Uh, that's an interesting development, I think, from, uh, from a, a lot of perspectives because it challenges an awful lot of traditional authority structures in a very deep way. When you think about the statement, uh, it fascinates me, that statement, he pledged allegiance to ISIS online. <laughs> that is an interesting statement because... Here is somebody, and, and this has not been an uncommon phenomenon in the last 10 years. You've got a young man, say, in London from what we would describe as a good home, 
pledging allegiance to ISIS online, somehow this, this non-existent virtual community has more power over his imagination and his sense of self than the nation does, or the school he goes to does, or the street in which he lives does. Fascinating shift of authority from normal geographical structures, if you like, or historical structures, to entirely new phenomenon. Yeah, and you know, that's funny, because I, I think it makes me think of, um, you mentioned, I think it was Philip Reef's concept of the first, second, and third worlds. Um, and again, I haven't really studied beyond your book very much, so I, I could be wrong. But the idea of, um, or maybe it wasn't even that, I think it was more talking about the, the the evolution of the way that man has sort of found their value from religious to um, economic to now uh, psychological, I believe it is. Psychological, yeah. So do you think that the uh, the the advance of technology and sort of the the uh, the way that that's shrunk the world and we've all come into these online spaces now um, do you think that that has sort of played into that uh, that shift into the psychological self Yes, most certainly. I, I think that uh, technology does various things on that front, one of which is, of course, it allows us to shelter ourselves from ideas that we don't like. Mm -hmm. There's so much news out there on the internet that you've got this emergence of people who they just read the niche news that confirms their own, we would say in the old days, confirms their own prejudices, but has that therapeutic effect of, of reinforcing the idea that we're right, which is something uh, we like, for example. So there's certainly that aspect aspect uh, to it. I think technology has really played into the therapeutic. It also captures our imaginations in terms of the idea that it gives us a sense of power, uh, that in, in, in times past, nature had tremendous power. Increasingly, over the last three or 400 years, we've come to regard the world and nature as just stuff, as just <laughs> yeah. raw material over which we can impose our will through technology. The COVID crisis has been interesting from this perspective mm. uh, in that uh, you know, two things, it seems to me, in the COVID thing have been interesting. One, we no longer have a hierarchy of goods. It's been fascinating that <laughs> the idea that, that the COVID pandemic should be ranked alongside other things has disappeared. It's it's just mm -hmm. the problem of the immediate is the thing that we uh, we grab hold of. And secondly, the belief that technology is going to save us. We we just right. have to get the technology right. People seem to have forgotten that actually we all die some point anyway, hmm. uh, and technology isn't going to save us save us from that. Yeah. Cool. Well, to kind of circle back to what we were talking about before I, I i rabbit trail all the time and that was certainly a rabbit trail but uh <laughs> anyway so tying back to what we were discussing before one of the other things that i've sort of noticed online is um is a sort of it's almost a tribalism um it's the idea we, we've we started to focus i guess as individuals around what we would call branding uh, in the space uh, so for example the word regenerated with the eight and the little you know cross and leaf logo that i have uh, which i love it's a great logo um and so, I mean, that has been something that I have to sort of maintain uh, and, and present in a certain way. Now, I don't put nearly as much focus on it, but certainly amongst many of uh, people that I know who are seeking to create content and, and grow an audience and a platform, branding um, is, is incredibly important. And so in the book, and particularly there in chapter five, right, it speaks to how Freud in particular he viewed this sort of like self-creation concept as just wishful thinking. We can't really create ourselves in our own sort of image. Um, 
Would you argue though that I guess this obsession over maintaining our brand rather than living our lives out as sort of normal people <laughs> stems from that same concept, that wishful thinking that we're talking about? Is that where we're trending towards as people putting our image out there instead of our actual selves, if that makes sense? Um, and I think it, to an extent, of course, we've always done that. There's sure. a sense mm -hmm. in which when you know human beings, even in the Middle Ages, in the different relationships they had, played different roles depending on who they were relating to. So I, I think there's a sense in which we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much about not being the same person in every context. And, and that's good, actually. I think it's it's not appropriate that a father presents the same to his children as he does to his best friend or to his own parents. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that, that role-playing in that sense, that's, that's not a bad thing. And the role-playing of a brand need not be a bad thing. If your podcast is is good, if you enjoy doing it, uh, if you want to, to get some um, uh, listeners tuning in, why not market it astutely and successfully? I think the problem becomes when, when self-creation becomes a kind of idol, and mm. that's the only thing we're ever doing. And when the image we create is so far detached from any reality that it becomes a kind of fraudulent performance. So I, I'm not concerned so much about self-creation in, in general as as i think the, the when it starts to play to our narcissism that yeah, right. becomes a real problem uh and at the tragic end of things it's you see people pretending to be somebody they're just not online sometimes with with tragic consequences but i think in in the mainstream i i, I don't find any problem with with branding as such um it does amuse me when i i, I these days I, if I speak somewhere, I'm asked to be somewhere. They might ask me, you know, if you can you promote this on your social media platform? Well, I don't have a so I've said I, right. I don't have a social media <laughs> platform. I I can mention it to a few friends who do, but I don't have a platform. Uh, it's not something that's ever attracted me. But I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing as long as it doesn't become a kind of arrogant self-promotion for the sake of self-promotion, which I think it, yeah. it often can do. Although if I could, <laughs> I would argue that you're not having social media has become part of your brand. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I suppose it is. It's a kind of, somebody met me recently and they said, you know, we're we, we all we knew about you we, that you were this mysterious kind of <laughs> hermit like guy who just, he's never out there. <laughs> and, um, and I never thought of myself as a, strange hermit-like guy, but there you go. Part of my brand, I guess. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I like to say you're probably, that leads me really well. It's a good segue into the next question. Cause uh, as I, I put on here, you're not on Twitter. Uh, and you, you know, sort of famously discussed that on mortification of spin, you're probably better for it. Um, but one phenomenon I've seen on Twitter in particular, uh, really, really it's all social media, yeah. but Twitter, I think is the most, um, the most, I don't know, I guess, radicalized example of it. Uh, and the concept that I've seen on there, the phenomenon is that uh, there's sort of a throwing caution to the wind and whatever we're, whatever mm. we're discussing. I've experienced it myself. I mean, I really can't tell you how many times I've written out a draft of something and it may be commentary and it may be right. The things that I'm saying, I feel may be very justified in saying, but I have to leave it in the drafts because, you know, I get a, a, a you know, moment of clarity. <laughs> so, well, that's mm. not necessary right now or that's not God honoring right now. Uh, I do believe that that anonymity, uh, or maybe even the visage of anonymity, uh, sort of underlies social, uh, social media. And so it increases that, what you would term, I think, as expressive individualism. Uh, 
So would you agree with that or would you diagnose that that idea of anonymity? Is it is it am I overemphasizing it or is that a really big factor in everything that we're talking about? I, I think it is a factor. Maybe not so much anonymity as the the feeling of anonymity. Right. Often yeah. Twitter handles are fairly easily traceable to people or sure. have their own names on them. There's a very good article if you if your listeners want to look at it and if you drop me an email, I can send you the link to it by the Catholic philosopher DC Schindler at the Humanum Review. It's available online and the title is Social Media is Hate Speech. Hmm. And it's a fascinating uh, philosophical reflection on things like Twitter. And Schindler's argument really is that, that Twitter exists primarily not for engaging ideas, not for a pursuit of the truth, but for a promotion of the self. And I right. think that, that that doesn't have to be the case. But it seems to me a lot of the time it is the case. So I think, first of all, the medium itself is often tilts towards a promotion of the self. Uh, the second aspect of it is I think it's and this applies to the written word as well. It's not just uh, Twitter. The, the, the disincarnate nature of polemic can often sharpen it. And there's a story that George Orwell tells about himself. George Orwell wrote a ferocious review, I think, of, I think it was a book by Stephen Spender, the poet, friend of W.H. Auden. And he later met Spender at a party and was very friendly and enjoyed Spender's company. And Spender made some comment to him about, you know, I was expecting you to tear into me as this sort of upper-class communist. And, and uh, Orwell said, uh, no, because now I've looked into your eyes and I see that you're a man. And if that applied to Orwell in the 1940s, operating with the print medium, I think it, it applies 10 to the power of five to us today sure. in the social media age, that I think it's important to remember that when we're engaging with people, there are real human beings at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the polemic. And that's one of the reasons why in, in the book Rise and Triumph, I tried to avoid polemic on the whole. I, I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was any secret where ultimately I was coming from. But I really tried to handle the ideas of those with whom I was disagreeing in as fair a manner as I as I possibly could, and to always remember that I'm dealing with human beings there. And I think that's something that we all tend to forget at some time. And those sort of addicted to social media perhaps can tend to forget more often. Than they should. I, I'm particularly shocked at the way Christians talk about each other on social. Right. Media. Yes. <laughs> you know, of all people, Christians should be able to handle it. But some of the most, I, I've had non-Christian friends say to me that you know, when they've seen some of the things that have been said on social media by Christians, it just their jaws hit the ground. It's as bad as anything a politician does. So I do think for Christians in particular, there's a need for real self-discipline and care in the way that we use use words here i've often said that slander seems to me to be the one pardonable sin in christian right. circles these days nobody cares if anybody slanders anybody else and yet the lord has some pretty strong things to say about angry words and disrespectful words yeah absolutely well actually i think that really leads well into sort of the last main question that i have for you and so and you know you're not just a a professor or theologian or also a pastor uh, well I, I, actually i am just a professor now i oh. used to be a pastor but i but i don't know where i got that I, idea i'm sorry <laughs> no i am just a professor okay. well, uh, but i have well, been a pastor sure yeah so as so, so. as a pastor in a, in a former life <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or a yeah. Former, you know um 
do how would you then say that you we should be guiding our congregations uh, in the use of social media do we do we touch on it at all is it something we should be talking about more intricately from the pulpit or you know weekday yeah. weeknight, weeknight studies or whatever it happens to be uh, yeah, I think we should. I think it's one almost has to be careful because I always made a big distinction in my mind between being a church and being a cult. And mm. uh, one of the things we do as a church is we press good teaching on people and we encourage virtue, but we don't police. We don't micromanage lives. So I think, first of all, good, solid teaching about the holiness of God uh, should in itself help cultivate attitudes of humility and virtue among among Christians. Secondly, I would mention it from the pulpit on occasion, social media. I, I never pointed the finger, particularly at members of the congregation, um, but I did say from the, the pulpit, one of the strange things about social media is it strikes me that a lot of people, particularly on Twitter, uh, a lot of people seem to spend an awful lot of their time trying to influence people or influence circles over which they have no influence whatsoever and will never influence. Right. And yet neglect being influences on the people sitting next to them in the pew or right. gathering around the coffee machine after, after worship. And I would try to press on people, you know, don't blow your reputation online such that you end up not actually being able to influence the very people you can influence those who are in church with you on a Sunday. So I think pressing responsible use of social media on, on individuals. When it comes to ministers and elders, I think a different standard should apply. You know, we don't want to be a cult. But on the other hand, if I was a pastor and I had an elder who was regularly slandering people on, yeah. on Twitter, then I think I'd take a more proactive stance and say, sure. you know, People, when they think about our church, they don't necessarily think of the members, but they think of the guys on the web page. They think of the elders. They think of the session. They think of the minister. Mm -hmm. And those who hold sort of public office in the church, I think, should be held to a higher standard because they should be setting uh, a pattern for every Christian in the congregation to follow. So I would make that distinction. I'd be a bit more heavy-handed when it yeah. came to office bearers and their behavior online. Yeah, you know that's something that I've convicted. I've been convicted of myself. I, you know, I've been on Twitter for some what the little anniversary thing shows up and it says you've been on Twitter for eleven years. I'm like, that's a long time. I was, yeah, and yeah. I was dumb eleven years ago. Yeah. I'm only thirty one. I was a twenty year old kid then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've said stupid things online. I don't, and I've said nasty things online. Uh, but I, I resolved four or five years ago. I decided that I would not put anything online that wasn't edited by somebody else. So right. I write, I write primarily for first things now. I occasionally publish stuff elsewhere, Reformation Twenty One or Public sure. Discourse, but each of those places has an editor and i absolutely trust my editor first of all to make my prose cleaner and better than it would be but also to make sure that i got the tone right and and mm -hmm. if i throw a punch it's a punch thrown in the right way at the right idea uh, and and is not a gratuitous point scoring exercise so i would encourage people thinking online you know maybe you can't have an editor for your Twitter account, but maybe you can have a friend yeah. that you can run stuff past. If, if you're going to get into a, into fisticuffs online, maybe you've got a friend you can run stuff past in advance. It's always good to have a second set of eyes, cool head to look at what you're doing. 
yeah definitely i think that that's something that i've uh, i've benefited from as i've cultivated a group of a group of guys who we tend to do that a lot and just share hey does this come across well <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. sometimes the answer is no you sound like a jerk <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah. fine <laughs> and it's good to take advice on those things yeah. um uh well, great. I mean, there's a lot more. I, we could talk about this all day. I know we're running up on, on our time, though. Uh, so do you have any other final sort of final thoughts on the subject? Um, how do we proceed as, as Christians in the age of information with, with care and grace and dignity? I, I think a lot of what we've already covered touches on that. I, I'd say be responsible. Uh, again, we don't, you know, I'm not a killjoy. I, I just happen not to be very good at technology. I don't think technology <laughs> is intrinsically evil, but handle it responsibly. Uh, don't let it, uh, but I, I would say don't let online relationships lead you to neglect the real relationships that you have. You know? yes. uh, when you're lying on your deathbed, you don't want to be Facebooking with somebody. You want to have a good friend sitting there, bodily present with you to, uh, to, to, to speak to you, to pray with you at that point. So I would say keep it in proportion. For most of us, I think technology should be a fun hobby. It should not be a central core of, of, of who we are. Yeah, definitely. And actually, that's become sort of a theme across all the guests that I've had have said very similar things on, on you know, the physical presence of other believers in your life is of utmost importance. And so and I want to impress that as well. I was going to say, and I think the time of COVID has taught us that. Yeah. You know, uh, we suddenly realized that actually sitting in front of a screen, even teaching, I mean, the great thing is the students at Grove hated online teaching. <laughs> uh, you know, they don't want to sit in front of a screen eight hours a day. Yeah. They want to actually be in a room with other bodies, with a real professor. Uh, and I think it's taught us, it's made us realize something that intuitively we've understood all along, but now we consciously understand that the Lord has made us physical beings and physical presence is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, that's that's a really good place to wrap it up, I think. But uh, where can we find anything else? I mean, you've already mentioned several places, but your writings or, I mean, I know we can't find you online most places. <laughs> <laughs> well, First Things is the major place. I write something about every two weeks over at First Things, generally commenting on some aspect of religion and culture or of the culture in general. I, wrote, I do a little bit of writing for Reformation 21 and public discourse. Uh, and uh, I have a weekly podcast. It's released each Wednesday. I think you can get it from iTunes, Spotify, all the yeah. usual places. So I have a brand, Mortification of Spin. There you, uh, go. you can <laughs> you can find me there. Great. Okay. Well, um, I think that's all I've I've got for now. So if you wouldn't mind uh, just praying for us as we close out, and then we can uh, we can head off. Sure. Oh, Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are a great, a mighty, and a transcendent God. And we thank you for the marvels of your creation. Above all, Lord, we thank you for the creation of human beings, those who are made in your image. And we thank you, Lord, that our amazing creativity is an analog to the creativity of yourself. Yet, Lord, we are conscious that we have fallen. And so we pray, Lord, that you would not only forgive us for our sin, but also through your spirit, sanctify us in the way that we use our talents, particularly today, Lord, that you would help us resist the, the evil temptations that come with technology and enable us to use it for your good, for our benefit and for your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Truman. Really appreciate you coming on. I know that you've got a, a, a busy schedule, so I uh, appreciate <laughs> no the time. Worries. Pleasure to be on, Greg. And, uh, yeah. 
Thanks for listening to Regenerated Radio. If this resource was edifying or encouraging, I hope you'll consider leaving a five-star rating on your podcasting platform of choice. Also, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel for live podcasts, theology primers, and gaming streams. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you next time.